Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. I'm Dr. Philip Brown with my good friend, Dr. Terry Jackson, and you're at the intersection. Interesting part about intersections is that we all have many intersections daily, and how effectively we navigate these determines the trajectory of our day and our life. As we're recording this episode uh, today, Terry, it helps me think back to how many, all these other episodes we've done, but I really like today's topic. I think it connects. Yes. Uh, but today we're going to talk about antidotes to hate. Antidotes to hate. And we could use a lot, a big shot of the antidote, right? It's amazing because it's just, some of it is real baffling as we were talking earlier before the show, before the show like I've been drinking this morning, right? But um, it's real baffling that that um, some people still play into the hate of other human beings, right? It's I, I, I've never understood um, that. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to provide some antidote so that people could use this and hopefully cure their hate. As a doctor, one of the things I always like to do before I cure a disease is at least understand where yes. it's coming from. Yes. And I think from my perspective, what I see is that so much of what gets transmitted as hate today is really, is really a disease of ignorance and fear, or maybe we could say fear-based ignorance. Yes, I would agree with that 100% because oftentimes if you could pull the hater to the side and have a conversation with them, there's so much that they don't know. And they've made all these assumptions based upon false information that they've, from conversations they've had with others or watched some news show and gathered all this information and they take it to be reality and it's actually not. We live in a world where the easiest thing to do is find information that supports our own perspective. That's right. <laughs> you know, that's right. Like we're fed that constantly. All the algorithms drive us to stuff that is more like us unless we seek something different actively. And the tendency is just not to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, some people call it misinformation or disinformation. Um, but perhaps that lets us all off the hook a little bit too much because it's we ourselves that are driving it based on our habits. And in a world where the rate of knowledge doubles in a matter of hours, mm -hmm. that formula just doesn't work anymore. No, it does not work. And part of it is the ability to be objective to listen to what it is we may need to hear, but we don't want to hear, right? Having the courage to do that, having the courage to have, you know, a conversation and suppress our biases to hear what the truth may be. It's really hard. It's a real mm -hmm. challenge. And we kind of find ourselves immersed in small examples of hate that we think don't matter right like i'll give you one you know anybody who uh, is kind of of the same persuasion i am in terms of college sports they're gonna hate duke 
Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. I mean, you know, it might even hate Duke players. Like, there's a whole ESPN 30 for 30 on I hate Christian Leitner. Right. <laughs> and it's just amazing that we think certain things like that are okay mm -hmm. and that it actually could potentially translate into real life. Mm -hmm. And the real fact of the matter is, if you're somebody who likes Carolina basketball, you certainly hated to play Christian Leitner and the Duke teams of that era because they were so good. Mm -hmm. if, if you're a Kentucky guy, you, you hated it because he put a dagger through your heart mm -hmm. or, you know, and, and other teams too. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it kind of, we use sports as a surrogate and we had a recent episode. We've talked about it in several of our shows where all of a sudden sport transcended that hate of the other team, and that was the DeMar Hamlin incident. That's right. That's right. It, it was uh, it was tough to see. I remember watching the game, and I said to myself, that guy died on the field. But then all of a sudden, people from all persuasions, all walks of life, regardless of religion, political affiliation, began to support this young man. And we heard that his foundation went from somewhere from $2,500 to buy toys for kids to now I think I, as I looked, watched the game, uh, the playoff game yesterday, now it exceeds $9 million. So it really didn't matter. They, humanity, to me, as I like to say, humanity was at, at its best because it supported this gentleman. So the question is, how do we normalize that? How, how do we take all of this and, and, and come up with the perfect, as you say, antidote to eradicate or even minimize the ignorance and the fear that plays into hate? It's interesting because what we see in that example, people contributing money to his charity because suddenly they, they sense him as human. Mm. I think we see examples of that all the time. I'm not sure it even necessarily advances the ball very much, right? Because mm. all that's, that's people's disposable income. They've mm. thrown over there and they say, mm. I want to feel good about myself. I'm going to give some money mm -hmm. to buy these toys. Mm -hmm. And unless we spend some legit time mm -hmm digging a little bit deeper on the humanity issue, it can just pass us by, right? We've made ourselves feel good. Mm -hmm. We've made a little donation. Some kids going to get some toys. That's all cool. Mm -hmm. um, but have we understood any more about the human DeMar Hamlin or who and what he represents? I, I would agree. What just came to mind for me was Savior Syndrome, right? And I'm going to address the issue from afar, which means in an episode that we did that's still in the can, still has yet to be released, um, being proximate to the problem, right? I need to be proximate to really understand. It's easy for me to write the check and send the check, and, you know, I feel good about what I did. But did that really solve the issue? Because it's a long-term issue of hate and ignorance and the re-education process that has to happen around minimizing or eliminating uh, hate. It, it was interesting how you started off with the, the, the sports example because 
I went to see a friend, I think it was in October, and he he lives in Ohio. We went to the Ohio State, uh, Iowa football game. And <clears throat> as we were going to the game, we were having a conversation in the car. It was, it was, it was him, uh, his wife, and myself. And they're both, they're both white Americans. And so we somehow got to the conversation of people disliking people. And his wife said, you know, the dislike and the hate starts at home. And so I began to smile. And I know how he feels because he and I have had a lot of in-depth conversations like this. And she, was, she began to talk about how Ohio State hates Michigan. But she says it turns into a lot more than that. It turns into the, pos- the potential of hating other people, hating other races, simply because we've created this culture at home where I hate Michigan. And regardless of anybody from Michigan, I hate them. I don't care who they are, what they do. Nothing about the content of their character, right? I just hate them because they're from Michigan. And she said that was very dangerous. And it was great to hear that, right, um, because that's how it actually starts. It starts at home with something as, as, as minuscule as hating another football team because it's in a different state or that's your rival, but that hate becomes real and it plays out in your life. And so that really brings us to antidote number one, right? We started out this whole thing that the, the disease underlying hate many times is ignorance. Mm-hmm. And there's a real obvious antidote to ignorance, <laughs> right? Right. Like knowledge is the antidote to ignorance. That's right. But it's not, you know, knowledge that I get through an internet search necessarily, right? It's knowledge that I get from experience. Maybe that's experiencing people different from myself in different ways. Maybe it is uh, knowledge that can only be obtained or attained through difficult conversations that address topics about which I'm unfamiliar. I'm going to coin a phrase for our show here that both of us will be able to use, and it's called proximate knowledge. The knowledge and the experience that I get from being close to the situation, that experiential kind of uh, knowledge that I get from breathing it's like an immersion right people go to different countries to get immersed in, in a culture and, and begin to get immersed in a language and that's the, the best way the same way for to to get rid of of ignorance is to be immersed in knowledge but you only do that by being proximate to the problem going and living and seeing and having friends and being around and listening to the conversations and you know traveling around with them so you can see what they experience because oftentimes that's what it really takes if i come and tell you a story about what happens to me you know you can have some compassion for me but if you're there with me that empathy is deeper but now you really truly understand because you've witnessed it versus just me telling you the story of what actually happened very powerful and it kind of takes me uh, back to you know, knowledge is not my interpretation of what your life has been, right? That's right. And we each have spent a fair bit of time over the course of, of doing this show talking about our own experiences and how they were and how they were advantageous and disadvantageous 
as far as understanding goes. And of course, part of the life experience I had was that highly integrated mm -hmm. from growing up in sports, mm -hmm. you know, from the time I was old enough to remember anything based on my dad's role to really all the way through college. But it still had gaps in proximate knowledge mm -hmm. uh, that I only discovered later through other conversations about what was actually going on inside people's lives mm -hmm. as independent factors, mm -hmm. right? And, and particularly mm -hmm. around the construct mm -hmm. of race mm -hmm. and how that was a very different life even from the life that I shared with people mm -hmm. of a different race, mm -hmm. their, their life on their own was very different than what I could ever possibly perceive. So mm -hmm. I just have to, have to accept that mm -hmm. and, and, and learn from it. You know, one of the most powerful questions a young lady asked me, and I think I've mentioned it before on a previous episode, she asked me, she said, so uh, classmate graduated together, we were down on Riceville Beach uh, one, one warm day. The whole class was down there. And she asked me as we were around the water, so how do black people dry their hair? And I said, the same way you do, with the towel or hair dryer. But it was an honest question. And she didn't know. And when you talk about ignorance, the ignorance of not knowing or seeing me so different that she didn't realize that I would dry my hair the same way that she dried her hair. It was, it was, it was, I chuckled when I heard the, the question because again, it goes back to the not seeing me as human. And I remember my, my senior, I think it was my, my junior year. It was actually my junior year playing high school football. One of the young ladies who was a cheerleader, African-American, after we, we were getting ready to go to practice and we saw her and she said to me that the daughters of our then head football coach came up to one of our running backs and was very innocent in saying this and probably didn't know what she was saying but she said my daddy said that you guys are the n-word and this is the head coach that we were playing for and so we didn't believe it, so we asked the two young ladies, his daughters, to say it again, and they did. And so it gave us a little bit of a different perspective around our head coach. But I kind of knew the city that he was from, and so I, as a youngster, I began to connect the dots. And with that, I looked at him a lot differently, and I always remembered that but then what also resonated with me was some older black gentleman said, Terry, instead of going to your high school, you should go to the high school across town because there's never been an African-American that received a D1 football scholarship out of the high school that you've gone to, which was incorrect at the time. There was one, a gentleman named Bun Rains. But your chances would be better if you went over here because of the football coach that they had there, Mr. Joe Miller at the time, versus um, the coach that you played for, Lonnie Baker. And so I didn't believe him. I had faith in humanity. And uh, they were correct. It was interesting, the talent that came out of 
pocket, especially a football talent, that uh, never had that opportunity because of the coach and his views. It was quite interesting. Um, and it's rare that I tell the story about the daughters, but they I couldn't believe it. But they did, and it was real. And I remember that to the day, and I was 11th grade at that time. And it's interesting, you know, you, you hear that and kind of leaves a person speechless uh, to a certain extent. And it makes makes somebody think, you know, is there hate there or is that a level of ignorance about humanity or is it something, you know, like it just kind of leaves me with the, <laughs> the, the say, you know, what in the world, right? Yeah, like, that's exactly. what, you know, Where I'm from, that's what we say, like when something is – just unbelievable we say well what in the world yeah, yeah you know like yeah. but a lot of us ignorance it, yeah you know it, it, it being curious it, it kind of it, it always takes me to a different question of, of i've grown a little bit in how i question i hope it's better but like it's you know what must be true for the beha- his behavior to have been that right 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 you know i'm gonna tell you another funny story there was a time in this city that I owned the bail bond business, and I've talked about it. But I was uh, one day I got a call from a friend, a gentleman I played baseball with from the seventh grade through high school, white gentleman, and he said, "Terry, one of my workers is down in jail, and I need for you to go get him out. I'll, I'll meet you down there." And so we're down there, and he's he's explaining to me what happened, and it's the Mexican gentleman that works for him. And in his conversation with me, he was so comfortable with me because he knew me. He either didn't realize what he was saying or he saw me differently. Let me put it that way. He says, yes, my guy got into a fight and somebody tried to stab him and a bunch of N-words jumped him. And he looked at me. He caught himself and he looked at me. He said, Terry, you know what I'm saying, don't you? I chuckled. I said, I know exactly what you're saying. Some people would call that a Freudian slip. But it was obvious that he saw me different than how he used the N-word, right? But the fact that he said it so comfortably to me, and then he caught himself, it was very interesting. And and I would say that that was pure ignorance. Uh, Again, knowing the person, we played baseball together from junior high through high school to include Babe Ruth. uh, And we played, matter of fact, we played football together. Um. But for whatever reason, he saw me different than um, what he was describing. And that's that's interesting in and of itself because what happens a lot is when there are successful African-American men or African-Americans, when they do have white friends, their white friends see them differently. They don't see them as being African-American. They see them differently. So people... Little, little white kids can look up to Michael Jordan and see him as a superstar and see him but they don't see him as black. Whatever it is they see him as, I have yet to figure that out. Whatever it is that we're seen as, I have yet to figure that out. However, that in and of itself is ignorance as well. Well, it's a function of, of de-grouping somebody. Mm-hmm. Right? Like <laughs> in a world where if everyone was seen as an individual, as 
you were in that particular case as people see Michael as, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's super easy to make somebody an individual if either you know them very closely or if they're a transcendent figure like Michael Jordan, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's the greatest to ever mm -hmm. lace up the basketball shoes. And so he is clearly different. He mm -hmm. is clearly an individual. Mm -hmm. He doesn't fit any category except himself, right? Mm -hmm. And the truth of it is every human on earth has those individual characteristics based on their temperament, talent, conviction, all the things, right? Like every human being is completely unique. Mm -hmm. They don't share the same uniqueness he did. Right. They don't share the right. same uniqueness you do. Right. In fact, that's the definition of unique. And all humans have such a powerful value. Yet we don't see things that way because it hadn't necessarily been our experience and a lot of times I think we've talked about this in different episodes surrounding ourselves with folks that are different than us in lots of different ways mm -hmm. is really important yes and that's the power behind what we call diversity equity and inclusion surrounding ourselves with people totally different whether it's people of the same persuasion and they just have different thoughts or people from different persuasions who have a different culture and you're trying to learn and kind of understand why the why's behind them and the how's behind them. It's um which I think is the most is, is most exciting. Some of the most exciting experiences I had was living in Los Angeles, California, when I worked for Mobile Oil. And they were exciting because none of my clients were American. And so I was forced to learn how to communicate with them. I was forced to learn, understand their culture. And that's probably some of the best learning I've ever had. And so any biases I may have had against what they would say, Muslims or anyone from uh, another country, I had to look past that because at the end of the day, it was about performance, my job performance, working with those who were Muslim, um, who were uh, Christians from, from the Middle East, Muslims from the Middle East, uh, who were Persians, who were Asians. It was about how do I connect as a human being to get them to understand that I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to in, improve their business in such a way that they can take care of their family, right? That was the... and. Their needs were the same as their needs and desires were the same as mine, and fortunately, I was able to connect with them and still maintain some of those friendships. So I think I've just heard in all of that our second powerful antidote to hate, mm. and that's a desire for business success. Yes, because you look at a country like ours that is. Uh, made up of people from so many different demographics mm -hmm. and you know we have several very large populations now of non-white and mm -hmm. we can predict out when white is no longer the majority in the country right so if you have a desire for business success 
Probably a good idea to start getting some proximate knowledge of different <laughs> populations, right? Probably a good idea to make sure that folks from non-white populations are part of leadership teams, That's right. meaningful parts, contributing parts, because if we want to understand how our business applies to populations that we hope to serve, then we need to know about them. We need to know about them. We need to kind of study and understand how they think, uh, what moves them uh, in their culture. You know, you go to the Japanese, some people, for instance, uh, when I was in Pakistan, what I found that, you know, how we like to embrace and shake hands in the United States, they don't do that. And so, of course, they're different, you know, different religion uh, dominates the country, uh, Islam. And so with the Muslim, you just don't go up and shake a woman's hand. You just don't embrace a woman. You know, we have to, I guess, get out of our American culture and mindset to understand, you know, the differences of others because ultimately what you want to be able to do is attract them to your business as well, attract them to your leadership team, attract them to your organization as employees because they add value with different perspectives. And we find ourselves, you know, in a, in a global, everything is global now. And, you know, in that context, the world really is shrinking, right? There's so much interdependence, every industry. And it's never been more important, right? To have the ability to understand. And I think you know, that's, that's our, our third antidote to hate really. And my, in my way of thinking is humility. Yes. Because that's what it takes, right? Like I can't possibly be competent in all the different cultures that are even in my hometown, much less across the state, country, and world. But I can sure be humble enough to listen mm -hmm. and to listen well. That's right. And I will add to that vulnerability, right? The vulnerability to, to expose who you are, expose your knowledge base, and, and for others to understand that, hey, all I'm looking, seeking to do is to learn. So help me learn more about who you are in your culture such that it makes me a better person. That whole uh, concept that you talk about with reciprocity, right, being reciprocal. Um, I help you become better, you help me become better, we learn better together, and as a result of that, then what happens is we make the world a better place. Yeah, we did an episode a while back on whole truth, and I know uh, your 23 is based around truth and how you participate in, in making sure the truth is out there. And it's fascinating to me what you're describing is a situation where both of our truths are important yeah. and they have a mutual, they have a, a, a reciprocal effect one right. on the other. And to the extent that we can understand that and have knowledge of what that is, it gives us a better solution going forward. And on a team, uh, whether you talk about a sports team or whether you talk about a a leadership team or any work-based team having those understandings mm -hmm. really uh, improve the relational aspects that that drive team performance that's what was so important to me as I played team sports you know the friendships that were developed um, we, we we hung out together we did a lot together right and I really thought that's what life was going to be like uh, because from an early age of 10, engaging in, in team sports through all the way, you know, to becoming adult, 
I'm like, well, this this is you know these these are these are friends, these are brothers, uh, these are relationships, and you know sometimes those relationships fall apart. Some of that's you know ignorance, and we all go our, our separate separate ways. But you know it was somewhat of a somewhat of an illusion, if you will, uh, around. Uh, what the world would be like as you get older and you start to experience or run into and bump into some of this ignorance that mm-hmm. we are discussing, right? And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not often that we really talk about the antidote to the ignorance, right? You know, uh, the antidote to, to hate, right? The, you know, of course, it's love, but <laughs> that's easier said than done. And, and uh, so how do we actually apply this love through becoming proximate, right? It, it has to be action. It has to be an application to it, right? If I get to know you, you get to know me. We get to know each other. We get to know our, you know, what we like to do. Uh, and that only comes from being proximate. You can't do it from an, uh, an, uh, an observation. Well, you, you have to be proximate to really observe, right? We can't just write the check and make it happen. Well, that's that gets to one of my favorite topics is that you know, being inclusive is a practice. Yes. And lots of different forces take us to different places on the trajectory of our life. I've talked about in the past how for in my life it was medical school when when I really got into a, a an environment which I'll call exclusive. Mm-hmm. And it was it was more exclusive not because we're doctors or doctors to be very soon, but based on really on the makeup, mm-hmm. right? Uh, along racial lines in, in, in many respects. And we have to, we have to figure out how to practice the skill of inclusion because it's not, it, it's not necessarily a natural thing based on our training. Mm-hmm. But what we got to realize is that the human tendency, obviously, is to surround yourself with people like you, mm-hmm. your tribe, whatever that is, mm-hmm. because there is a fear, and we know that you know a lot of times underlying ignorance is fear, mm-hmm. or other way around, underlying fear is ignorance. But... So, so we've got this fear, so we surround ourselves with people that are like us. That's a pretty natural thing to do, right? Power protects fear. But we just talked about what it takes to succeed in life and succeed in a business context and all of this. And so it's actually uh, it's making our disease worse when we behave in that way, right? Mm-hmm. So it ha- we have to intentionally practice doing something different that's really a fear-based thing. And for a lot of folks, that, that can be hard until you have success with it. Because you're talking about comfort. People like to be comfortable. They don't want to be uncomfortable. And to be uncomfortable is to address whatever your ignorances are um, and deal with them, right? And so if that ignorance is around hate or the lack of knowledge about another group of people, more than likely we're not going to do it and it's, it's not going to be, very few people will be very intentional about that, right? Because it doesn't make them comfortable to, to, to do so. 
And again, I go back to the question, why would another human being be uncomfortable around another human being? How can one human being see another human being as not being human? And, and that whole narrative that's been created over hundreds and hundreds of years, right, about African Americans not being human and what we see in 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 the news and what we see and as you talked about medical journals and the studies and and all of the ignorance around that, right? But yet and still they'll say, well, we know that the first man came out of Africa and we know that the first man was an African man. I'm like, well, if that was the first man and that man was human and you're human, how do you see the difference? How do you create this difference? How do you read into this difference, right? It doesn't make sense to me. It's very illogical. Yeah, there's little logic in that. Yeah. But we know that there have been historical forces that have created that yes. narrative yes. for hundreds of years. Yes. Uh, and there are, at, at the crux of it, in many respects, there are economic reasons that it was done that way yes. you know, because it, it advantaged people in power. Power guards fear. Yep. Advantaged <laughs> people in power at the expense of people who may not have had the power at that time, and then it could just perpetuate itself right on through. Um, but we find ourselves in a situation where you know, the time is up, right? Like what got us here won't get us there That's to the right. next place, right? So I think we're seeing it play out uh, in in business performance in our country, certainly, yeah. because we are behind on inclusion. There is no question about it. You can look at Fortune 500. You can look at academic institutions. You can look at pretty much every segment of society and there's no way to come to a conclusion different than we are behind in our inclusiveness. And what's interesting is the data has been out there for many years that for those organizations that are more inclusive, they tend to be run well and they tend to be more profitable. And to add to that, the research shows that when a company names a CEO, uh, uh, names a person CEO and that person is African American the stock jumps instantly what it also shows is when an African American is named CEO when you look at their background and their history more than likely they they are more educated better educated than than that than than uh I guess who who uh, another person that was in consideration and they have more experience and so African Americans tend to have higher degrees when they're in those positions. And the result of that is a jump in the stock market, which is what you really want, right? Because you're talking about shareholder value. That's the ultimate goal of a CEO is to increase shareholder value. And so shareholder value is also increased. I reached, reached, reached I guess I researched that probably about a month ago, and I was surprised at what I saw. It's quite interesting. Oh, it's across the whole spectrum of inclusiveness, even not CEO companies that are more diverse have all these performance factors elevate mm -hmm. over time. Yep. And, it, you know, <laughs> it's really interesting that, that we find ourselves in the, in the shareholder value space, you know, because I think you can, you can certainly debate that that's the most important thing for a company to value. 
but you can't debate that that's how it's playing out right now right. for most companies. That's not right. all. We'll, we're going to have a future guest, I think, that shows how that's not exactly the case. Yeah, um, that's right. But, you know, and Simon Sinek does a good job talking about how, and I mean, that was a, a construct of the 70s that mm -hmm. began to be totally pervasive by the 90s. And we've watched our country cycle from that cycle of, of upward mobility of the 50s and 60s to back to this income disparity that we see now, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we know there's a cycle to be had there. And the question is, you know, when are we going to figure it out? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the question. When are we going to eradicate the ignorance around that particular topic to figure it out? I, I'm, I'm confident that it can be figured out because what I've found is human beings can figure out what they want to figure out when they want to figure it out. Uh, if they want to figure it out. That's the key. Because, again, there's always someone disadvantaged and then someone that's disadvantaged. And it may not be the advantage of those who are advantaged to really want to figure it out. Because I, all of this can be solved to me. Um, in, in my mind, there's a solution for all of it, it's, but the people have to be willing. Yeah, and... You can make an extremely solid case for the phenomenon you're describing right now where basically we have the issue of race being, being played in order to prevent labor solidarity. <laughs> and that's played out over the course of history numerous times, and we really are seeing it now where power, a source of power, you know, kind of gives this shiny object of race, race relations, and all of this that prevents what should be a really natural collaboration of cross-labor solidarity, which should have nothing to do with race. I agree. 100%. You know, and that would fundamentally change a lot of the factors. And that that recognition alone would actually change a lot of this uh, hyper focus on things like shareholder value and would, would have profound implications for income inequality across the workforce. You know, um, for those who are not uh, fans of the unions and for those who are fans of the unions, a lot of the research shows that the middle class was created because of unions. The, the rise in the labor wages as a result of, now we may not necessarily agree with everything that unions do. There are always going to be those things that we don't agree with. However, when you look at the research, it shows that as the middle class was created, laborers were in place because they were trying to, what they say, protect the working conditions of the worker and raising wages. Now, as a country, the U.S. has always been after cheap and free labor. That's been the history of, of, the, uh, of this particular country. And when we talk about solidarity, the first thing that comes to my mind is Fred Hampton, who was a 19-year-old leader of the Black Panther Party. And uh, a story comes to mind of a white gentleman who moved from, I think it was North Carolina, to Illinois, Chicago. He was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. 
and somehow he and Fred met. And Fred began to tell him it wasn't about race, it was about economics. And that your hate of me because you're being in the KKK and the way that you're voting is against your own self-interest. And as a result, over a period of time, Fred was able to convince him that we both have the same interest. And that gentleman ended up leaving the ranks of the Ku Klux Klan and began to partner with Fred Hampton as they began to become uh, more unified around what the real interests were. And they were able to fight through all of the issues that divided them. Quite interesting. It is a fascinating history, and it you know it comes back to that was a function of ignorance. Yep, yep. Right, like that was a function of ignorance, and learning how it should be different uh, had great value in changing the perspective. And what we see now is back to that cycle of how we get information, how online presences give us more of ourself instead of different perspectives and how that drives ignorance. We got to make it an active practice to seek information that is different, you know, and I talked about this a month ago in my uh, commencement address at, at my alma mater, right? Is that there's a responsibility mm -hmm. to seek uh, opinions that are different from yourself and the responsibility doesn't end there it continues such that you also have a responsibility to legitimately challenge the way you yourself are thinking mm -hmm. if we do more of that then we're going to find a lot more elegant solutions because mm -hmm. truth is you know people used to have the saying truth is in the middle right that's probably wrong, right? Like, it's just that there are multiple truths, right? Like, what is true for me, mm -hmm. and it's totally true, is not the same as what is true for, for you. That's right. And both are equally valid. And if we want to go forward with a, with a powerful new future, then we got to create a third way. That's right. And that's, the magic happens with that third way. You know, I think we talked about this in an early episode, and I think the phrase was shared reality, right? Getting on the same page. Your truth and my truth, and we have a conversation, and we, we have two truths, and we create a third truth that's much bigger than your, your or my truth individually, but it, can take, it, it is that third way that you speak of that moves us forward. That's right. It's your, uh, you know, it's co-creation, right? Co-creation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and doing that is the way to move forward. You know, the ultimate antidote to hate, uh, in my, in my opinion, is co-creation. Yeah. Because that gets at all the other pieces, right? That says, I got to have proximate knowledge. I've got, I've got a desire for business success, right? I'm humble enough to know that my way isn't the only way. I'm vulnerable enough to tell somebody different than I am that I got some gaps, mm -hmm. right? And I'm collaborative enough to work together with somebody to create something 
that I don't get lost in because it's part me. And you don't get lost in because it's part you. And we've co-created right. this new shared reality, you know, that we go forth with and adjust on the fly. That's right. That's right. It's never set in stone. It's always a journey. It's always, as, as I think it was Adam Grant uh, who says, think again, right? We always have to think again every time. Yeah. Yeah, well, this has been a fantastic uh, discussion. Like so many of our episodes, there's no answer, right? But we did come up with what I think, and I hope our, our viewers will think are several pretty good antidotes to it. You coined a new phrase that, as far as we know, based on our knowledge, <laughs> <laughs> right? right? Proximate knowledge. We talked about the desire for business success, humility, vulnerability, and co-creation. You know, that's five pretty good steps uh, to eliminate hate. And we want to thank all our viewers for spending the time with us here on Unlikely Intersections. If you want to see more, unlikelyintersection.com or Unlikely Intersections on uh, Facebook or YouTube. You can catch me at Doc Philip Brown on LinkedIn or Terry. You can catch me at LinkedIn, Terry Jackson, PhD. Thank you for your time. Begin to co-create with other human beings and realize that all of us have the same interests and the same desires. We'll see you at the next intersection.